everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Now, in our last episodes, we got to interview Connor Goldsmith and then Lenore Zan, and we covered the first two parts of a Jerry Siegel angel story, which has been oft forgotten because it's not easy to find because it's printed in weird places. Uh, the first two parts are printed in the back of a Kazar magazine that ran for three issues in the early 70s. And uh, the third part was printed at the back of a book called Marvel Tales, which was reprinting Spider-Man and occasionally uh, running some new material, or in this case, some unused material from other places. So uh, our review today is a story called To Cage an Angel, which ran in 1971 in the back of a book called Marvel Tales number 30, which weirdly still contained a Kazar story, <laughs> which is part of a Spider-Man anthology. <laughs> now, uh, basically the story, as you need to know it, is Angel was on a date with Candy Southern, although she doesn't know he is Angel. And uh, his father was murdered by the evil Dazzler and he wants revenge and Candy's been captured and now Angel has been unmasked by the Dazzler. So his secret identity of Warren Worthington III uh, with wings has been revealed. That's all you need coming into today, but feel free to go back into our previous episodes if you'd like more, more information. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined by three new friends to the podcast today. Uh, Kurt Sasso, who runs the uh, Two Geeks Talking podcast. I got to appear on his show recently, and I look forward to that coming out. Uh, the wonderful Austin Gorton, who's putting crazy, amazing Marvel content online all the time, and I love it. And uh, and a man I've been a fan of for uh, many years, uh, Mr. Stuart Moore. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. I'll have you use your names, your gender pronouns. Let us know where we might know you from. And then our question for intros today, based on today's issue, is have you ever witnessed a, an explosion? Uh, so we're going to go with Stuart first. Hi, Stuart. Welcome to Graham Hawkins Lane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Stuart Moore, uh, my pronouns are basically uh, he and him, but anything's fine. Um, and uh, uh, what, what else was I supposed to say? Oh, what, what you might know me for. I'm primarily a writer. Uh, recent works include the, the comics uh, Highball, Batman Nightwalker. Um, and uh, and I've and I'm also a novelist, um, primarily of Marvel novels, and um, uh, and it, I, I've I've been an editor. I've uh, I've I've worked with places like Vertigo and Marvel Knights and Virgin Comics over the years, and uh, I also currently um, on a freelance basis I run uh, publishing ops for Ahoy Comics, which publishes some of my work as well. Uh, we we've had a chance to bring uh, Tom Pear on the show before, uh, who I know works for Ahoy. He's he's great. Yeah. Uh, oh, have you ever witnessed an explosion, Stuart? Oh, uh, I, I, you know, I was trying to remember, and I don't think I have, but I've definitely heard them. Um, there was a there was a transformer explosion in uh, in New York just a few years ago that caused a power outage um, for most of a day. Um, I can't think of actually seeing one, but yeah, I've uh, I've felt the earth shake once or twice. Fair. Uh, let's go over to Austin Gordon next. Hi, Austin. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Chad. Uh, Austin Gorton, he, him, and you might know me from my X-Men reviews at therealgentlemanofleisure.com, where I've been reviewing every issue of every X-Book, uh, starting from the beginning, and I'm up into early 1997 right now. That is a quest uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. It is. Uh, we are kindred spirits in that regard. Uh, you might also know me from the podcast, a very special episode where uh, me and uh, my co-hosts review very special episodes of TV. And uh, you might know me from Twitter and various social media where I'm tweeting out 
trading cards and uh, uh, this year celebrating the 60th anniversary of the X-Men by uh, going through the X-Men canon year by year and calling out the uh, the the cover of the year and the character of the year and creator of the year and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's a blast. Have you ever witnessed an explosion, Austin? Um, only in as much as uh, throwing batteries into a campfire <laughs> at Boy Scout camp and the resultant explosions, which I think is like the real world analogy to the fuel vat explosion that occurs in this issue. So <laughs> yeah. God, it's, a, it's a really unsatisfying resolution when we get there. I'll just tell everyone that in advance. Yeah. <laughs> and then let's go over to Kurt Sasso next. Hi, Kurt. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me on. And it was great chatting to you on, on my show, Two Geeks Talking. So my name's Kurt Sasso. My pronouns are he, him. And I am known for being a host on Two Geeks Talking, which is an entertainment industry inter show, interview show, interviewing over a thousand plus people since 2008 in comics, TV, film, music, and video games. And you know, it's been a, a wonderful journey so far. I've had amazing guests, return guests, and I got to have you back on, Chad, because we only scratched the surface of this amazing show. So, anytime, my friend. Really, truly, I mean that. Uh, have you ever witnessed an explosion? Only with some uh, similar to what Austin was saying. We <laughs> we had some fun up here in northern Canada during our our camping days, and there may or may not have been some paint cans into a fire once or twice. But you know, uh, we were never really around to to see it. So. You know, my other question alternative, I was going to ask if everyone had an evil relative or not. That might have been juicy. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. uh, lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me from the show. I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer. Uh, I've published a memoir and a documentary and a graphic novel. And now I'm hosting a podcast and writing on the side. And it's, uh, it's a busy, wonderful time. Uh, I have been peripheral to several explosions. When my parents divorced, my father moved to Las Vegas in the 90s. And there was a time we were visiting where they were for weeks planning the destruction of one of the big casinos. And it was like this giant event where everyone was going to gather and you could watch the casino crumble because they had timed. But I was there for like a month and a half and they kept delaying it and delaying it. Eventually, the footage of that explosion got used in some films. And I can't remember what the casino was. I'd have to go back and look it up. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, my listeners will know, I despise Las Vegas. <laughs> it's avoiding so uh, I also work as a therapist in my day job. I do on-call crisis response. And there have been a number of explosions in like various facilities that I show up in the aftermath. And I have to like help the people on an emotional level who've been impacted. So I've never seen the explosions myself, thank God. But I have often seen the uh, the aftermaths. And that just makes me think of poor damage control at Marvel. Because, boy, <laughs> the explosion is more fun to watch than what is left in its remnants or wakes afterward. Uh, so I am, uh, I'm thrilled to begin today by welcoming uh, Mr. Stuart Moore to our show. Stuart and I connected online after we did a review of the X-Men Origin Cyclops issue, which Stuart wrote. Uh, and I got to tag Stuart in some posts, and then we were like, hey, come on the show, and I'm so glad yeah. to have you here, my friend. Uh, let's uh, let's begin. I like to start with a lot of my guests. Just what is your journey uh, into kind of uh, into becoming a comic book professional? So that might be from a fan to professional, or just I would love to hear kind of your origin story in this industry. Um, yeah, okay. There, there are a few pieces to it, I guess, uh, as with most people. Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I, I mostly read DC comics. Like I, I kind of thought Marvels didn't have enough pages and they weren't worth the money, you know? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but when I was, um, 
uh, when I was 16, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when this is because I don't want to date myself, but uh, uh, a friend of mine sat me down with just big piles of all the comics that were coming, Marvel comics that were coming out at the time, and it just blew my mind. It just changed my my whole perception of things. Um, so then I, so ever since then, like, I feel like I have an affection for both companies, but in different ways. Like DC characters are the, are my friends from my childhood, but the Marvel comics are the ones that are really cool to me, that are a little more, um, a little more edgy, a little more textured and complicated. Um, as far as, uh, professionally, um, uh, both my, I, I started out as a book editor, um, at St. Martin's Press, um. And that'll actually play very peripherally into some of the stuff we're going to talk about later on um, when we get to Candy, uh, Candy Southern. But, um, but uh, I, uh, I got a job at DC. Um, I became an editor in the editorial group that became Vertigo a couple of years later. Um, and I got it in the stupidest way possible, which is that I answered an ad in Publishers Weekly. And Publishers <laughs> Weekly at the time was a weekly magazine with a three-week lag on ad placement. So if you placed an ad, it wouldn't appear for three weeks. So no book publisher used it for that. It was useless. It just took too long. But DC didn't know that, and they didn't really care. They weren't in a hurry. They were adding a new position. Um, so I went and I interviewed with Karen Berger. Um, and uh, it really was the first time I've ever like, read an ad and said, oh, that's me. Like They, just, they wanted someone from outside comics who had um, contact with other kinds of fiction writers um, had experience, but not too much. They weren't paying that much, you know. They were, and they were. It was for this department that was trying to build, um, trying to build a, a a little niche within DC for more adult comics in a way that it started with things like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and was already running Hellblazer um, and a few and Sandman and a precursor, a few pre few other precursors to what became Vertigo. So that's how I get into that, and I was there for like nine years. But I always wanted to write, and uh, after a short stint at Marvel, I just sort of went freelance and I've had a few consulting gigs here and there, including the current work with Ahoy. Uh, but I've pretty much been a, um, been a full-time, almost full-time writer since then. Fantastic. You have a pretty storied history and, <laughs> uh, and a more extensive, uh, I mean, I know you've written a lot of things, but a more extensive X-Men history than people might realize. Uh, your name is on a lot of books that people have read. Uh, now, I, I I think sometimes people go, oh, wait, this is the guy that also wrote that thing. And when you start to make those types of connections, it's really interesting to tie that through line together. Tell me a little bit about some of your X-Men work. I have a lot of focused, specific questions, by the way, that we'll get to. In okay, a great. Um, yeah, you you may know it. You may have a better rundown on it than I do. <laughs> um, but I've... Uh, I've written Wolverine a few times. I love writing Wolverine, by the way. I have to say, for a character who's um, seen as as overexposed as he has been at various times, um, you, I can always figure out something else to do with him. Um, I wrote a uh, I wrote an issue of the Wolverine comic in I think it was two, around 2005 called The Package that was very well regarded, um, and uh, I did a one shot after that called Under the Boardwalk, which no one read, but which I think is uh, uh, the, the art on it by uh tom coker i think um it's just beautiful um it is tom and, coker yeah i just reread this yeah. last night and it's good it's a good book thank you yeah i loved what he did on that um i worked with cp smith on the other wolverine story and he and i did wolverine noir which was a, a mini series as well um and then i wrote uh, uh during the time when namor was tied in with the uh, x-men i wrote uh namor the first mutant uh which was uh, i think ran about 11 issues um, so I did that. That was that was fun. That was a book that started off behind schedule and never caught up. So the art 
like there are a lot of partial fill-ins and things like that which there, there were some bumps but um but i think we did some good stuff there um i'm trying to remember what else does the x-men cyclops uh origins one shot that you reviewed on the show i mean i'm um, gonna go i'm gonna go down the list you did a story please. with b smith and x-men unlimited number 12 in 2005 uh, oh yeah, did <laughs> Wolverine and Deadpool decoy and Deadpool the duck and Deadpool team up and a story in X-Men to serve and protect as well as your novels, uh, Civil War and Dark Phoenix Saga. I mean, there's there's a pretty big list. There is. And, you know, I forgot all the Deadpool stuff. I keep forgetting he's tied in with all this. Yes, yes. Of course. I mean, he likes to think so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the, the decoy was kind of fun. Um, I uh, Every time I write Deadpool, he winds up either dressed in women's clothes or just completely naked. Like it just it it it's one or the other. Deadpool yeah. is Marvel's ultimate drag queen. He's the Bugs Bunny mm -hmm. of the Marvel universe. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> Bugs Bunny. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask some specific questions about your work, but let me go to Kurt and Austin for just a moment. Let me hear uh, from each of you. What is your origin story with the X Men? If you're willing to share, do I go first, Austin, or should I? Uh, I can go first. Sure. Um, I've talked about this a little bit in a few different places, but, um, I got into comics from the trading cards. Uh, I was a baseball card kid. And, um, after I moved as a kid to, uh, um, to where then I ended up staying for a while, I had a, a new friend sort of introduce me to, oh, you like, uh, baseball cards. Well, these are baseball cards, but for comic book characters. And I was familiar with characters you know spider-man and his amazing friends and things like that i had seen the pride of the x-men pilot um in instinctively puzzled over how wolverine could be born with metal claws because i understood that mutants were born with their powers and that being born with something metal didn't make a lot of sense to me uh and so i got into the trading cards and then from there that led me to comics and i don't specifically remember what led me to pick up an x-men comic other than possibly that pride of the x-men special but that's when i was in the hobby store buying my cards and wandered over to comics i picked up uh x-men volume two number eight which was the uh uh towards the end of jim lee's run and uh when when bishop shows up and gets a boysenberry pie in the face uh, <laughs> or throws a boysenberry pie hits rogue in the face uh that was my introduction to the x-men and then um, it just took off from there. I have I've picked everything up since then. Um, it, it the the mix of of um, I guess high octane testosterone art and interpersonal drama that was on display in that uh, in that issue hooked me in. Sort of the glimpse into the uh, backstory was definitely something that pulled me in rather than turned me off. Uh, speaking as the guy who wrote the encyclopedias, I rarely meet someone online who cares about the minutiae as much as you do. Uh, the, the way you're posting these older images and reminding people of old continuity, I feel like we are very kindred spirits in I, that, that way. I am a, a, a diehard handbook fan that um, I, I tore those apart as a kid. That was very much a, I love, I love nonfiction books about fictional worlds. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of that love comes from is is born out from the handbooks um, and encountering those as a kid. Fabulous. Uh, and then Kurt, same question. Well, for me, uh, unfortunately for me, I was more of a, a cartoon guy. So I got into the animated series. So for me, it was it was X-Men, Spider-Man, uh, Batman, that type of 
collaboration, of course, our Saturday morning cartoons, obviously. But for me, it was just the the voice acting and the action of the X-Men, the stories of that series. While I know it's it's limited compared to the comics, I ended up uh, picking up uh, House of M more recently just to kind of read through that series as well and kind of get, get back into it a little bit here and there. But Wolverine personally is my favorite just because not only am I also Canadian, but I'm also the same height as him at, at five foot three. So <laughs> it kind of, you know, kindred spirit in that regard. I just don't have the adamantium claws, unfortunately. Uh, I'm really I say that uh, if oh, I was oh, sorry, say that that um that animated series was th- th- that had some pretty complicated yeah. plots going on and in fact I actually was able to follow some of the comics plots better after they adapted them like cuz cuz mm-hmm. they were they were a little easier going sometimes yeah. Uh, I was just going to say to uh, to Kurt briefly, I'm excited for you to hear the last episode we recorded, which is very much about Canada, in which I asked the question to our three Canadian guests, Do does Alpha Flight do a good job of representing Canada? And two of the guests said, who? And the third one said, eh. <laughs> I'll have to go with the more like a, eh, close enough, but, you know, there, there's a lot of... Uh, stereotypical Canadianisms that are, are definitely in Alpha Flight. Some good, some not so good, some didn't age as well as it probably should have. But. We'll uh, we'll get there on my podcast eventually. Wolverine is making his first appearance on my show uh, canonically soon. I mean, we've talked about him a lot, uh, but we're going to be doing some Wolverine content soon, which I'm very excited about. Let's begin with Wolverine, who has not officially been introduced on Grey Malkin Lane yet, but everyone knows Wolverine because he's Marvel's Batman in a lot of ways. Uh, let's begin with Stuart here. What makes a good Wolverine story? Uh, when you get an opportunity to write with this character, how do you approach him? He's so layered and complex. Uh, I think there's a million ways to do a Wolverine story. I agree. And that makes that a hard question to answer. Um, what I always try to do is just start with the character and figure out something um, unique to him. One of the things I really love about him is just how long how long he's lived um, and that he's had um, he's just had all these relationships and all these connections with different people. Um, that's something they were playing with in the first season in particular of Picard was something similar. You had this older character who just had all these uh, all these different layered connections to, to people throughout his life, his, throughout his life. And in Wolverine's case, um, there's also the memory lapses, which I think, I think his memory is now better than it used to be, but it, there are still, there are still holes. Um, so in a way he's like a, uh, he's almost like a, he's almost like a, a war veteran of the 20th century. Like he can, uh, he can, he can revisit places. He can, re- he can, he can he can re-encounter people he knew back in the day and sometimes he remembers everything and sometimes he doesn't and that actually leads to a lot of especially sort of dark and noirish stories in my in my my thinking anyway wolverine uh you can do japan you can do world war one yeah. world war two or weapon x or you can pair him up with a teenage girl and give him a kind of a father or mentor role he's been a school administrator he's been an assassin he's been the leader of the team uh, and you've done some really fun work with him. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work with uh, with Wolverine and the stories that you mentioned earlier? You told some pretty fun stories. Yeah, um, you you hit on something actually that I that I wasn't thinking about, which is um, his role as a protector, um, and that's <clears throat> that works particularly well when they team him up with um, with younger girls, which they've done several times. Um, in the case of the package, I, I remember I pitched a few things to editor Axel Alonso. 
So um, uh, and, pause very briefly. The package is a sorry. story. In, oh, no, you're good. It's in Wolverine volume three, number 41. Wolverine's got a baby strapped to his chest as he fights a bunch of bad guys. But go ahead. I just wanted to give a context for those that may not be familiar. Well, the um, the the quick pitch was Logan, Wolf, and Cub, <laughs> um, because that's pretty much what it is. He's just carrying this baby around, and he has to get the baby out of a war torn country. Um, and it was it it was a it's one of those nice. It turned out to be one of those nice simple ideas that was just Axel kind of helped me a lot with the with the pacing and guided guiding guiding me through it. But it was um, it was a it was just a nice little one shot. Um, where under the boardwalk, the other one shot that we talked about was more about um, Wolverine revisiting a place he'd, uh, he'd, he'd been several decades ago um, and a woman he knew has grown older while well, he hasn't, or he has, but it doesn't show as much. Um, so that I was trying to deal with that aspect of his life, um, which is it's a, little like, it's a little like the way they play Doctor Who with the companions sometimes, with, um, where he doesn't age, but they do. And... It, it's different with Logan because he's clearly mortal, um, but and he does age, but more slowly, and he sort of retains his strength and vitality. And I, I, I thought it'd be interesting to play with the idea that people he knew didn't necessarily, uh, wouldn't necessarily be the same when he saw them again. I, uh, I immediately go, this is not the context, but there's that old movie, uh, Matthew McConaughey's character is older, and he says... Uh, he, he likes high school girls and he says, <laughs> he says, I keep getting older, but they stay the same age. Same age. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's dazed and confused, isn't it? I think. Uh, that yeah, 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 that's, that's it. Bit. Yeah, that's uh, a wonderful line. Yeah. Who's everyone's favorite Wolverine sidekick? Who do you like him paired off with most? Um, I'm going to go with Kitty, just old school. Like that was always, that was always great. Um, Absolutely. I'm a Jubilee guy. I think if I if I had to, uh, that was that was my vintage, and I liked uh, um, the the contrast of her sort of high energy to his um, sort of laconic uh, keeping to himself. Uh, briefly for me, I, I think Spider Man was was interesting. Just his dichotomy with with the, a younger generation was. Uh, rather interesting uh but especially the one with the bar fight scene on his birthday that was that was an interesting concept and see and i'm a laura kinney fan x23 is uh is gonna win my list although do i, I do love kitty pride and jubilee as well uh staying on this theme and we're gonna come back to wolverine in a second Stuart, you also did kind of this dynamic with the older classic hero and a teenage sidekick in a way in your namor series when you brought in the character Loa or Alani Ryan, can we talk a little bit about uh, that series itself and especially about that relationship? It's one that's often overlooked in X-Men books, but I think it's really interesting. I think, if I'm remembering right, I think that was an editorial suggestion that they thought um, that uh, Namor could use that sort of relationship. And I believe Logan was specifically referenced as an example of what we what we sort of wanted to do. Um, that, um, I, I was aware of, um, there's a problem with Namor, which is that he's um, he's a he's an authority figure. Um, he's a very um, he's a very brash and violent and impulse driven authority figure. But he's still he's an so, authority figure. He's so horny and he's so angry. <laughs> well, that's what I liked, and I I remember at the time thinking of him a little bit as Don Draper um, from Mad Men, which I uh, which I played with a little bit. Um, in the scenes with his old 
girlfriend in one of the flashback issues. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, that was, a, that was just an attempt to kind of, um, give him a foil, give him someone who would, uh, sort of, um, poke him at his pretensions a little bit because Namor thinks a lot of himself. And, uh, and we were always trying to figure out how to deal with that in the, um, in the first issues, I introduced a group of young Atlanteans who I thought would sort of fill that role. Um, but as the sort of, as the, 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 um, connection to the X-Men intensified and editorial wanted that, um, which was fine. I, I, I like writing that. Um, but that meant the young Atlanteans were a little more peripheral. I think I had him get involved with one of them eventually. Um, but they didn't fill the role I needed them to, or I, or that I introduced them for because Loa was there and she could do that instead. And yeah, that provided a little more, um, there was some tricks there Atla new Atlantis at the time was, um, located at the base of the, uh, of the X-Men's Island. Of Utopia, um, yes. Uh -huh. Utopia, yeah. Which, um, you know, caused some, uh, it, it, that caused some plotting problems. <laughs> like uh, at, at one point we were, we were talking about whether to have uh, an X-Men villain just take over Atlantis. And I remember arguing like that as soon as you do that, you don't, you're not writing a Namor story, you're writing an X-Men story because the X-Men just can't have that. They can't, um, they can't have, they can't have a villain running the, um, the 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 base that's holding up their their island home <laughs> like they 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 would have to just go down there in suits and and just clean it out um so so there there were there was a little bit of back and forth on on how to handle the connection with the x-men because really namor is not a tremendously natural match um with those characters like he has his own domain that's traditionally somewhere else um He's a, an outsider to the surface world, but he's not an outsider in the same sense that the um, that the X Men are. He he has his kingdom, he has his followers. Um, so it was a it was a balancing act. Like I, I liked the interpersonal stuff. I liked the way he worked with Lo. I liked the way he worked with um, with Emma Frost in particular. I thought that, I thought that that was a great relationship. That I think I think Grant played, Grant Morrison might have played with that a little bit first. I, I, I can't remember exactly how that came Karen in. Gillen did a lot with the two of them too. And yeah, Emma right, Frost yeah. is another character who's so horny. <laughs> She's wonderful. I loved her. I loved her when I wrote the um, X-Men Dark Phoenix graphic novel. She was, I mean, not graphic novel, prose novel. Sure. Um, she was, uh, she was just so much fun. And I got to expand her out there a bit because um, that was her first appearance was the Dark Phoenix saga. And, um, Chris hadn't really figured her out yet. You know, she's a, she's just kind of a, she's kind of a bondage villain really um, in that story. She's, she's sadistic, um, but all the texture for her came along a bit later. Um, yeah. So I was able to work some of that in, I, I hope, I think. Uh, she's another character that I'm excited to give a lot of love to on my show as we get there. Mm -hmm. This is a strange statement and let me give a little context as I, as I make this while we're on this topic. So the uh, the X-Men reintroduce a new class of students every 10 to 15 years, it seems. We had the original class, the New Mutants, Generation X, and then eventually there was a, a, a team called Academy X. And it was mostly about six or eight characters, but there were about 50 other mutants kind of in the background that were named, oh. but nobody ever really did much with them. And then M-Day happened, right? So that's when all the mutants lost their powers. Right. There's now only a couple hundred characters to choose from. And the X-Men have formed their island, Utopia, where they're kind of building their own nation in a way, which is a precursor for what's happening on Krakoa now. And a lot of these Academy X characters that had survived, but were kind of in the background, had never really been fleshed out. 
Uh, so this is when Pixie kind of got her chance with the big team. We saw some things done with Anol. Uh, there's other characters like Indra or Trance or Match uh, that have always just kind of been in the back, right? Gentle got a little bit of attention a few times. I think, uh, and there, here's the bold statement, I think the character you've had the most lasting legacy on, Stuart, has been Loa, in that no one's ever really done anything with this character except for you. Uh, Loa is a mutant who has tattoos on her face, she can phase through things, and the matter will kind of discorporate behind her as it kind of folds away. <laughs> And uh, you gave her uh, history and uh, an amulet that lets her breathe underwater and some, right. some cool stuff. How did you get this particular character? Uh, she was suggested by editorial. Um, and, and it was, yeah, she was one of uh, the class that was coming up at the time, I think. And I think they wanted to do more with her. And that, like, they were always, I remember at the time, uh, the time I was doing this, Matt Fraction was writing Uncanny. And uh, I could tell he was just... I, I love Matt. I, I know him personally, but he, um, but I could tell he was having trouble squeezing all those characters in. Like it, it, he had, he would do a subplot with Namor once every two issues that would go two pages and then he wouldn't have room for it <laughs> for another two issues, two or three issues. Um, so yeah, she was just one of a, a, a bunch of characters like that. I'm glad you recapped her powers because I honestly could not remember them um, as, <laughs> as we're talking now. It's been long enough. Um, but, uh, but yeah, she, I mean, she was fun. Those, um, the, the the really young mutants are always kind of fun to do. I always like writing teenagers anyway, because um, their emotions are very raw. They're very close to the surface. And uh, they can they, they express themselves in ways that adults are sometimes inhibited about doing. Um, so they, they're, they're a lot of fun for this uh, for this kind of thing. Um, I don't know if I answered the question or not. Yeah, yeah. No, you did a great job. Did you enjoy telling her story? Yeah, I remember I did. The amulet was... Um, uh, that was a device as much as anything in order to let her hang around with Namor. Um, but uh, but I, I tried to weave it into a sort of a mythology and make it part of her story. So back then in that era, I was working for the Marvel handbooks and part of my job was to read all of the incoming scripts. Uh, simply, I wasn't mm. editorial at all, but my job was to kind of help maintain the database so that as we were writing the handbooks, we knew what characters were coming up, right? If we're writing a book in April that's going to be published in December, we got to know what updates to add to the characters before we get there. So I would read some of these scripts, these Namor scripts. I would also read uh, 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 Matt Fraction's X-Men stuff. And I remember multiple notes in his scripts being like, I want to work in all of the mutants onto the yeah. island. <laughs> and uh, and it just there was so many that it was really tricky to do because even two hundred is too many to feature in a couple of stories. Obviously, uh, I don't know. Do you have any response to that, Stuart? Uh, no, I, I agree, and uh, I, I think uh, I, I think Matt had all good. Matt wrote some great stories during that period, and he had he had um, he had all good intentions. But yes, he was trying to handle so many characters, um, and that's where um, the Namor spinoff was part of a. Um, it came out of the uh, Dracula event they did. Yeah. Um, and that was there, an attempt to... Is it his, to his kind name of, Victor Gishler, if I'm getting the name right? Introduced, Victor Gishler, like, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, an X-Men yeah. premise yeah. where they were just fighting vampires all the time. And you had like a whole race of underwater vampires. Yeah, I liked the underwater vampires. I, I, unfortunately, I think the event, uh, it worked very well within the miniseries, but I don't think it, it, I don't think it really had a lot of legs for the spinoffs. Like it didn't really, it didn't really help us the way it should have. But I liked underwater vampires and I tried to... Um, I got really into it. I got really into. I went right back to Lovecraft on a lot of that, and I um, I came up with this idea that uh, the, um, the, uh, the the vampires who had been early Atlanteans 
and I tied this in with Marvel history too, in a way I can't remember now, but, uh, but the, um, that they had an underwater city that every, um, every inch of it was, um, every inch of the buildings was black stone covered with writings. Um, and the writings were actually the first draft of, uh, of the Necronomicon, I think, or something like that. It was all, it was all intended to be mythological. And I remember an X-Men retreat telling them, you guys, <laughs> any of you want to use this, you can, but you don't have to, like, it's just sitting there, you know, it's just there under the sea. One of my friends on the show, Tristan Palmgren, uh, who's come on the show a few times, just wrote a book for Aconite where he features your underwater vampires. Oh, really? The of X-Men in there. So that, that, that's kind of a fun dive. I did not know that. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. I, I fun fun dive, no pun intended, when you have underwater mm -hmm. vampires. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, before I keep going with my questions, uh, Austin and Kurt, are there things you'd like to ask Stuart? Uh, you got anything, Kurt? You know, look, looking at your long history, especially with, with X-Men, and especially as yourself as a writer, you know, what challenges did you face from a creative perspective uh, in terms of maybe not being able to tell the stories you want to tell? Um, well, as I say, Namor, I'm, I'm proud of what we did with Namor, but it was always behind schedule. Um, Ariel Olivetti was the original artist, um, but there are partial fill-ins even, I think, before the end of the first story arc. And that wasn't his fault. That was just, it, 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 it was in a, Marvel was, springing uh, marvel was putting out an enormous number of books at that point and they were spinning things out of every event and uh everything was just put on the schedule very very quickly um so there were some there were definitely some hiccups because of that um the uh uh i'm trying to think like in when i wrote firestorm for dc that was in the middle of a whole lot of events so which always requires you to sort of think quickly on your feet and uh and try to uh and 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 adapt keep your storyline going but um bring in the things that will hopefully hopefully raise the sales of your title at the same time um so uh that's that's the big challenge with ongoing books which i've only written a couple of times um other than that i don't know i've been pretty lucky with editors i've always worked with people who um who understand what i'm doing and i'm very good at I, i'm a planner so i don't spring a lot on people late in the process I guess. <laughs> Austin, how about you? Um curious how you go about uh approaching a Deadpool story, given the way that he is the Bugs Bunny of the Marvel universe and has that sort of, you know, propensity for breaking the fourth wall and a lot of the traditional rules, storytelling rules, you can kind of do anything with a Deadpool story, and then that can sometimes be a handicap because when you can do anything, how do you decide what to do? So, wondering what yeah. you how, how you go about tackling that with Deadpool. Well, I haven't written Deadpool on a on a long term basis, so I haven't had to I haven't had to deal with how you change it up over time. Um, but I do think the key is to um, is to find something that makes you uncomfortable um, because. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what he's about um he's he's uh, his very presence within the marvel universe makes all the other heroes uncomfortable because um he's a he's a killer and he's he just laughs about it um so what you have to do is uh i i don't uh i'm not a um i'm not very into splatter and and gore so i don't i don't dwell on those things too much but uh but i do like to um i do like having to do things to make someone else in the in the in the comic and hopefully my preferably myself very uncomfortable um the last thing i really did with him was deadpool the duck which is about five years ago 
And um, in that case, what I really did was try to approach um, probably Marvel's two best known humor characters um, and mash them up in a way that um, uh, it, it, it sort of played with the way that that their humor is of completely different breeds. Um, <laughs> Deadpool is just a uh, irreverent violence, basically. And uh, Howard the Duck is almost a kind of intellectual cynicism. Um, they can both be driven to rage. They can both uh, they can both go on rampages, and that's probably where they meet. You know, that's probably where they uh, where, where <laughs> they where they have the overlap. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but I wanted to play with the idea of them stuck in the same body and having arguments with each other, and Howard being appalled by some of the stuff Deadpool does, and Deadpool just being sort of, um, you know, bored by the uh, by the degree to which Howard would think things through, you know, think through his his place in the world or uh, or his effect on the world, that sort of thing. So um, so that was a that was how I approached that one. Uh, as we're recording this, I just went to see Cocaine Bear last night, and I oh. something I said to my friend as we left the theater. I'm like, that was just a Deadpool movie. <laughs> it, was, it was nuts. <laughs> Uh, there's an iconic cover on Wolverine decoy that everyone needs to look up. It's a uh, psych, uh, excuse me, Wolverine kind of ogling Deadpool dressed as Marvel girl. And it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, my, made me laugh out loud again, looking at it yesterday. <laughs> this is a spoiler, but, uh, I, I think my favorite line in that story is, uh, when, um, Wolverine looks at Deadpool's sort of charred corpse in the marvel uh, in the marvel girl costume near the end and says genie i think i'm finally over you <laughs> <laughs> so good so good uh what you might be best known for among x-men fans uh is uh is wolverine noir which is uh, a beautiful story you did in 2009 with cp smith uh We've had a little bit of discussion about the X Noir universe in a in a past episode here, but tell us a little bit about Wolverine Noir. Well, it was part of, as you say, it was part of a a larger Marvel Noir initiative, and the um the uh, the remake, and, if you will. The, and for the, completeness for my show, I'm referencing the episode with Dennis Calero, who uh, who collaborated right. on the X Men Noir. But uh, go ahead. Right. He. I think he drew. Did he drew the first? Did he draw the first Spider Man Noir. He did all the covers. He did our. He had beautiful covers for. I'd our have work. to look it up again. It's been a minute. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Dennis is Dennis is a genius. Right. Um, the, um, but the, uh, uh, the 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 starting point for the noir universe was to um, recreate the various Marvel characters um, as originally, and they played with this as they went along. But originally, it was as non-powered um, uh, detective characters or or crime crime story characters. Um, and so, in our story. Um, uh, Jim Howlett is a, uh, uh, he's a PI. Um, I don't remember when we said it. It was, it wasn't present day. It was, um, it was, I think it was, it was either right before or right after World War II. I can't remember. Um, it felt very it was, prohibition to me. <laughs> yeah, we still, it's still, they still, I remember we still used the, we used the elevated um, uh, railways in New York, which used to sort of spit tar down on the streets and everything. Um and uh, it was, uh, yeah, I think it was depression. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he's just a, he's just a gumshoe. He's just a detective. Um, he's Sam Spade, basically. Um, and uh, he gets drawn into some very, very dirty business. Um, I had worked with CP, uh, the artist, CP Smith, on uh, on the, the story we talked about earlier, the package. And I knew he could really handle this. He's, um, he's so good at like, he's got almost a Cheroscuro style with lots and lots of areas of black. Um, and he really pulled it together as a character. It was, you know, he was 
different from uh, he was different from normal Logan in that he hadn't he hadn't lived as long. He didn't have the memories and he didn't have the powers. He hadn't been through the torture of becoming um, becoming Weapon X. Um, but uh, but he had a lot of the same kind of demons driving him. Um, and the whole idea was to take it, take the character, distill him down to being sort of a normal person in a very difficult time in American history in a um, in a very dirty urban space. And just uh, just just build a story around him from that. We talk about these various portrayals of Wolverine, who can be the monster, or he can be the point of view hero character in that normal world, and and taking that hard spin on him, which is something you do good at. You do a good job of, and like a lot of Wolverine writers do, of taking that very human side of him. He's the straight man in the story sometimes. Uh, and it doesn't have to be gore to make it a good Wolverine story. There's right. a lot of this character that has a ton of nuance. Uh, now, when we're approaching X-Men from scope, Stuart, I think your biggest X-Men related project is your Dark Phoenix Saga novel, which is, of course, uh, such a huge thing. Now, a lot of people have not read the X-Men novels. Some of the novels, speaking on behalf of the handbook guys, some of the novels are considered canon. And some of them are considered alternate universe. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it kind of comes down to, can we fit it into the character continuity or not? Tell us about uh, writing Dark Phoenix. Well, Dark Phoenix was a real challenge because um, I've, uh, I've adapted. It was an adaptation of the, uh, of the comics. And uh, it, uh, <laughs> its publication got delayed a couple of times, actually, because it was supposed to tie in with the film, um, which, of course, kept getting delayed and delayed. Uh, eventually, Titan just published the book anyway, um, but uh, but it um, it was a real challenge because um, the Dark Phoenix saga sprawls out over a long period of uh, of the X Men uh, comic of the late seventies and early eighties, um, and I had to kind of distill it down. There's a there's a core ten or twelve issues that tell the main story, but I wanted to get the origin in there, um, and I wanted to get in. Uh, I, so so there's a prologue that's basically the shuttle flight. Where she um uh, she's she's rescued the X Men she's uh, or she's been she's she's part of a team and she has to get them back down to Earth which she does safely but at the sacrifice of her own life and then she's reborn as the Phoenix. Um, what I tried to do there was um, there's a degree to which Chris and his various collaborators um, were making this up as they go along as you do when you're writing a monthly comic um, and I wanted to make it a little more. Um, a little more coherent. Um, I can. Uh, I, I also wanted to make. I, I had a couple of goals there. I. I, I wanted to. Um, I, I wanted to make Gene a little more of a character because um, there's a. And that's no slight to the other writers who, who've handled her, but she was always sort of a perfect girlfriend. Um, and I realized writing it like we really didn't know anything about her before she joined the or during even much during her times when she left the X Men. Yeah. Um, so I tried to give her some. There's some scenes when we're going when she returns to her family house, where I have her going through mementos and things like that. And just trying to flesh her out a little bit. Um, and the other thing I wanted to do was uh, the Phoenix itself is an interesting entity, and I'm I'm sure you've talked about this on on other episodes. But um, what I really like about it is it's a um, there's a cosmic explanation for it, which is it's, that it's this. Um, it's this force that's been around forever and the Shi'ar have encountered it in the past. It's known. Um, and to the Shi'ar, it's also has a mythological dimension because it's been around for so long. Um, there's also a, um, a, a personal 
dimension to it where it's the expression of a young woman's rage. Um, and that was something Chris dealt with a lot. And I think that was very important to him in writing it. But there's another, there's another explanation for it, which is hinted at right at the very beginning in the shuttle stories and then not really brought up again, which is that um, it's a mutation. Um, and it's, it's almost what Grant Morrison started calling later on a secondary mutation. Um, because when she takes the shuttle flight down, she can feel her DNA unraveling. Like there's all this stuff happening to her that's never really referenced again. And I, I, I wanted to deal with that a little bit. I wanted to, I wanted to at least bring that out. And I like the fact, I, I like the idea of the Phoenix as a force that encompasses all those things, but can never quite be boiled down, can never quite be understood. Like if you stare at it, it goes out of focus. Like it, it's, it's, it's something other than maybe you first think it is, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I wanted to comment quickly on uh, what a what a wild project. We see a lot of books adapted into comics, but to adapt a comic into a book is not an easy challenge. Uh, and it's a huge cast of characters by the time you get the Imperial Guard involved. Uh, Jean Grey is a character we've spent a lot of time on on my show, and we're getting ready, for those are, that are familiar with our trial shows, we're getting ready in the early fall to do the trial of Jean Grey, which is a very preemptive mm, nice. announcement which means I will be reading her entire publication history and then uh, writing basically a thesis on her is kind of how these, <laughs> these big episodes go. I also, I've been a little hesitant to do this one because I know Marvel has uh, big plans for the Phoenix Force, which has been reinterpreted in the last couple of years as kind of a cosmic entity on the level with the creation forces of the universe. Uh, but also it like seeks human forms. Uh, Jason Aaron used the Phoenix Force in his 1 million BC Avengers uh, as she's involved in the birth of Thor. She's now like part of uh, the character Echo or Maya Lopez, uh, who she's bonded with. There was that wild story at the end of Utopia where the Phoenix Five, uh, <laughs> they capture the Phoenix and then its power gets split into fifths. Uh, so yeah, this is a... This is a, a character or an entity that we have a lot of exploring to do uh, on my show. Uh, and yes, you're correct about Jean Grey. Uh, she's not ever given a lot of flaws along the way until you make her responsible for genocide. Right. <laughs> and then it changes things a little bit. Uh, Kurt or Austin, any comments on uh, on this uh, discussion? I was just going to um, sort of what you had said, Stuart, about the the mutation point, that, that's, that, that that plays into this as well. That was... Um, sort of what Claremont and Cockrum had in mind um, originally was to give her a power boost through right. the cosmic rays that gave the Fantastic Four their powers. And if you look at that issue that ends with her going through the radiation storm, um, X-Men 100, um, I don't know if it was Cockrum or if it was the letterer. Oh, I think it tack, was, tack, tack. Yeah, yeah tack, tack, <laughs> yeah. tack. It tack, does tack, the tack. same. Oh. They put it in the I same sound effect. That. Wow, as, I've never as that. Fantastic Four number one. And that was sort of their hint that she was traveling through these same cosmic rays. And that was their intent was just, it's a almost like you said, Grant Morrison's secondary mutation that gave her that power up. That's what they were after was to give her a little bit of a boost. And then along the way, the story developed, I mean, relatively quickly, because by, you know, 108, which was eight issues later, but it was bi-monthly. So I guess that's like 16 months later. Um, you get the Shi'ar story and the Emkron crystal and sort of the Phoenix force aspects come into it, but it was definitely just sort of a, 
a power boost at first. And then this whole, you know, to your point, Chad, <laughs> sprawling, ever increasingly complex mythology behind the Phoenix Force as its own thing spring out from there. For the completest out there, if you have not read Al Ewan's recent series, Defenders Beyond, it establishes that there are oppositional forces from all the cosmic forces and the Panther God uh, that Black Panther worships uh, is the counter to the Phoenix Force. It's a uh, oh. beautiful art and it's a really, again, we can, we have a lot to say about this. Uh, this Alan thing. Davis did some interesting stuff with that in his Excalibur work, mm -hmm. um, positioning Phoenix as the uh, opposite to Galactus. Yeah. And did a did a beautiful issue, full page Alan Davis art with uh, Phoenix and Galactus battling. But a lot of Alan Day, he did a lot of work with that Phoenix mythology that has all sort of been um, pigeonholed a bit and into a narrative <laughs> cul-de-sac that a lot of later stories have sort of ignored or contradicted. But yeah, yeah. Then he had the anti Phoenix, and there was all the, yeah, the yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's the Necrom and all that. Yeah. And we're back to the Necromonomicon. I can never see yeah, that. There we go. <laughs> uh, Kurt, did you have any thoughts on the Phoenix Force? You know, I, I just, from just from referring back to the animated series, because that's what I'm only familiar with, unfortunately, is, is just that arc that they did for it was touching and heartwarming, but it was also like, you know, how are they going to take care of a character that's this powerful and this strong without sacrificing their own morals and their own uh, identities? And I thought that was rather interesting as well, too. So I have something now to read. I'm going to be, go out and pick up uh, pick up your work there, Stuart. So I can't wait to, oh, to read it. And, the, uh, yeah, and, and I'll say the um, you, you got to something there, too, which was this is well documented that the ending of the um, the Dark Phoenix saga was altered it was changed at the very last minute um at uh, editor-in-chief jim shooter's um request because he felt gene really had to pay for what she'd done after she'd uh, after she'd wiped out a planet which apparently wasn't even in chris's plot john byrne kind of added it as, as he went along like or he made he he added the people i think he added the people on the planet um so that made the crime far worse um and this led to um the last few pages of that, uh, of the fate of the Phoenix issue, were rewritten, redrawn at the very last minute. And let me tell you, they work pretty well when you just read them. If you try to adapt them and you try to get into the heads of what the characters are thinking, it's very tricky because, like, why did why did Jean lead them there? Why did she? There, there's just all kinds of holes that come out. Like, I had to sort of, I had to do a lot of work to make that make sense. Um, like, what? What's she up to? What's Scott up to? Where are they? Why are they doing this? Why is she? Um, why does she wait so long to sacrifice herself if that's what she's going to do? Like, there's just a lot of stuff like that in there. Um, I think it. I think it came together, but that was a that was a challenge, and it was one I didn't expect because. And there are other things too. There are actually issues in that run that where things happen that are not picked up on in the next issue. Like, there's one where Professor Xavier is like spread out on a operating table like by the hellfire club and they just forget about it like he shows up like three issues later in the wheelchair says something like i see i was right to hang back and let my x-men handle this which none of which makes any sense when they're when they're battling like the, the most powerful foes they've ever fought um <laughs> but uh but it was just it was just the way it went um i made the choice to keep xavier out of the story longer than in the comics because he is so powerful um that uh and and the story begins with his return from uh from the Shi'ar homeworld where he's been with Lilandra. And I just delayed that because it seemed to be more powerful to have him come in much later when Gene is really out of control. And again, this is like, 
this is no slight on what the creators were doing at the time. They were doing it an issue at a time. They were bringing in beats. They were um, they were bringing characters back, and 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 again, sort of like beating out the story as they went. But when you do it, I, I always say it's easier to write these stories the second time um, because <laughs> you can sort of look at what worked and you can shape it a little more. So that's what I tried to do. I love that idea, Stuart, that of of bringing Xavier in later as sort of the 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 teacher emerges at the darkest hour to sort of best the student and then the way that it plays out that he seems to accomplish that but then in the end doesn't and she has yeah. to do it herself that's that I, you're i i love that that idea it, it's it absolutely adds some more power to that to have him come in towards the end there rather than just hanging out from the beginning uh, giving Wolverine demerits and chafing yeah. at how the new X-Men aren't <laughs> aren't teen kids that he can boss around anymore. Yeah, there's a conflict with um, with Cyclops in those stories with Scott, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it doesn't really go much of anywhere. Um, right. Like it's it's right. just one of those things they set up. Um, it's natural. It works. Right. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't very. It, it, I found it kind of distracted from one because what i was focusing on was the phoenix story it kind of distracted from that so mm -hmm, taking that mm -hmm. out didn't matter i think it helped the story actually yeah yeah so so would you, is it safe to say that cyclops is just basically a side character you know he's just not he's useless to the x-men at that point well no i don't think so at all i think he's i think he really is the leader um and uh but one thing and i won't go on about all this too long i know we need to get moving but uh, You're great. Um, one thing um one thing that really I, I tried to be really careful about writing that novel was I wanted this to be, th there's a level on which this is a story about a young, uh, about a young woman um, faced with, how does she deal with near infinite power and, 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 and can she cope with it at all? But there's a danger when you write these stories um, that what you can find yourself writing about is uh, how does a guy deal with his girlfriend who gets um, unlimited power? And I didn't want the I, I, Scott's very important to the story, and his um, his love for his his love for Jean and vice versa is at the very core of it. But I didn't want him to be the point of view all the time. Like I I, I wanted it to be much more about her, and I kept having to sort of lurch back a little bit and and center her a little more, like focus it on her a little more, because I didn't want the problem to be oh my my girlfriend's crazy you know like what like she get like she might destroy the world what do i do you know like what's well, not really about you like it's not really about him <laughs> my girlfriend so. can beat me up now I don't know what's <laughs> right, right oh fantastic this is a wonderful and i told people from the very beginning on my show we will slowly get into more and more complex content as we go through uh this is a good transition point speaking of adaptations uh, the X-Men started in the 1960s, were initially reinterpreted and reinvented by uh, Claremont and Len Wein and other people who turned them into what we are more familiar with. But even that was an interpretation or an adaptation of something else. And we so often see modern writers regularly, we've reviewed a number of these stories on my show, going back and setting content back in the original stories or reinterpreting, which, Stuart, is what you did with X-Men Origins uh, Cyclops uh, number one, right? And we've, yeah. uh, we've covered the X-Men appearing in all these different places from Untold Tales of Spider-Man to Gwen Stacy to, you know, all over the place, but it's all the original team worked into these other stories. Uh, do you guys have a, uh, a quick opinion on 1960s X-Men? <laughs> <laughs> whatever you have read in the past or what do you love or hate 
me. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I always liked it. Um, but again, it's a little before my time. Like I, I find comics from that period a little bit, a little wordy and a little tough to, um, to I, they don't have the flow I'm used, I'm used to. Um, but I did like the X-Men and I, I liked the fact that it was this quirky, strange thing that never quite caught on in the sixties, that it was just, it was just a little off from the rest, from the re- the Marvel characters were off anyway. From They're the what strangest was, teens of this, all. Yeah, they are the strangest <laughs> teens of all. And I love it. I love it when they go to the, when they, when they go to beatnik coffee shops, especially, and, uh, you know, the beast swings around and stuff, those scenes. But I also like that they had their own little self-contained world and their own, um, their own set of villains who would come back and re- recur and spar with them periodically. Um, it was, I, 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 I like it all. I, I, I came in on, um, I came in, the first X-Men stories I read were some of the, um, some of the later of that first run when they were in the reprints, when they were, re- when the, when the book had gone reprint, um, when I was pretty young. Um, and I was, I was intrigued by it, but I didn't really understand them. Like what's, what's factor three. You know, I, I, I couldn't figure any of that out. <laughs> uh, Austin, any, any thoughts on sixties X-Men? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on sixties X-Men. Um, I, We'll we'll caveat this by saying that objectively, it's not hard to understand why that book didn't last. Why why it went it why it was canceled? Why they brought it back as the reprints? And it really took the the all new all different X Men to sort of salvage the concept and and turn it into what it is today. Um, but I think there there's some charm in the scruffy edges of the Silver Age X Men, and I have a lot of affection for. The original five that's sort of born out of my affection for Louise Simonson's X Factor, which when I was first getting into comics in the 90s and was sort of going back and and learning what I could of this narrative through back issues, um, because of course back then there's no Marvel Unlimited, there's no scans online, there's barely trade paperback collections. Um, you know, you're, you're quarter bin diving and dumpster diving on a, you know, allowance kind of thing. And so a lot of the original X Factor stuff I could find cheaper than everything else. So I had a bigger chunk of that original X Factor run and read a lot more of it. Um, so, you know, Louise Simonson, Walt Simonson, this was sort of formative stuff for me. And it gave me a lot of affection for the original five that when I did eventually go back, and read the original Silver Age stories kind of helped carry me through some of the the rough patches there um, of, of, you know, the Silver Age kind of storytelling and, and things like that. And you just, you know, it's, it's Lee and Kirby, but it was never their best. It's Roy Thomas, but it was his first real book. And you can kind of watch him figuring things out as he goes along. Well, I've, I've um, interviewed Roy directly. He didn't care about the X-Men that much. Right, exactly. Yeah. He's been very, he's very <laughs> upfront about that. And then of course, you know, at the, at the back end of it, you get Roy again with Neil Adams doing just revelatory groundbreaking um, art that, that just broke all kinds of boundaries and, and changed superhero comics, but it was you know, sort of too little too late. But I love, I love the, the stuff on the margins, the silver age love interests, Candy Southern, Ted Roberts. I stand for poor Ted Roberts. Um, some of the goofy one-off villains. Anytime these guys come back, I love it. I love when they when they dip into that era in the modern world and try to do something with it. Roy just did a, a X-Men Legends story that was like the the Wolverine after Wolverine's first appearance. This was his next adventure. And with Jack of Diamonds. Jack yeah. of Diamonds. I love Jack of Diamonds. Wow. He's just a ridiculous 
ridiculous Silver Age character, but I love him. He's just, he's goofy and fun and yeah. It's really fun being the guy that knows that stuff, right? And looking at yes, X-Factor, when yeah. they bring back the locust in a random issue. Yes, exactly. You're like, whoa, I remember where that guy came from. <laughs> My favorite, and I've said this on the show from the beginning, is the Cafe Agogo stuff. I love oh, yeah. Yeah. I love the yeah. beatnik stuff. I love Candy Southern. I love Vera Bernard the poet. Yeah. The whole thing. Well, Bernard, I think, is a creep, but I love the girls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kurt, what are your thoughts on 60s X-Men? You know, a, a classic with the '60s is obviously the 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 far out colors, and and it's just amazing just to see the amount of you can identify a villain, you can identify a hero, you can just by if they like the fuchsia that I'm seeing currently with what we're just about to review was just so eye popping. Like I didn't realize that color was even possible on the comic page. So. <laughs> realistically like i would i would have to look back at your archive and of course austin's as well too and, and stewart's work too and just absorb what is it truly to see x-men from the very first issue on so i have a lot of homework to catch up for the next time i happen to be on <laughs> so uh jerry siegel we had talked about this on the last couple shows was hired in this random role he was working as a proofreader doing some editing work uh, he also uh, was working, uh, excuse me, he also wrote this story and a few others for Marvel right before he kind of left. The tenure was pretty brief. We talked about that in the last episode. One of the things I wanted to introduce today to keep this a little relevant is what he had to work with when he considered doing an Angel story at the time. Angel had been part of the X-Men for a long time, but there were really only two kind of focused Angel stories or things that connected him. We met his parents very briefly that time they showed up at the X-Mansion and Magneto was there and he put them to sleep with his magnetic eyes and then planned to make a mutant android army out of their DNA. And then we later saw them during the backup story when they were doing the five-part features or the three-part features on the original X-Men. We saw this kind of very rich family. Uh, Warren had his wings that he kept private and was sent off to boarding school. And then he launched his individual career as the Avenging Angel. The only other thing that belonged to Angel at the time was a girlfriend. She didn't belong to him. But the only thing that was part of his story outside of the X-Men was uh, his girlfriend, Candy Southern. And so you see Jerry Siegel kind of effectively taking those pieces of what made Angel unique uh, and tying them together in this little three-part story, which is fun and silly and campy. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on the Angel or what it was like to read this old Jerry Siegel story from Marvel Tales number 30? I have a bunch of thoughts. Uh, it um, first of all, I um, I see Roy's hand in this pretty heavily, and Roy was known for um, encouraging uh, and and hiring people. First of all, this this one this story, as you noted, was probably at least written a few years before it appeared, um, but it appeared probably a couple of months before Roy became editor in chief, and as as an as an increasing editorial force at Marvel. He hired some. He hired a few people who DC had discarded. Um, he had Gardner Fox writing Doctor Strange for a little while, and I know he said that he uh, he rewrote those stories himself heavily. So I don't know if I, I don't know if you can assume every word here was written by Jerry Siegel. That's <laughs> what, what I'm saying. Like there may have been some uh, there may have been some editing as, as we go along. I have some thoughts about Candy too, but we can get to that later. Yeah, we'll get to there in just a bit. Uh, uh, from the others, what, what were your thoughts on just rereading this issue? The the pencils by George Tuska, uh, inks by Dick Ayers, I think are actually really nice. Yeah. It's very camp, but it stands up. I really enjoyed those. Yeah, I'm. I, I've never been the hugest 
George Tuska fan, but I liked this. I thought this that it fit this story pretty well. His work and those the the inks from Ayers, who I do, I, Dick Ayers is great. Is a great inker. Um, I really this this is a, it's a fun campy story, but it's it's relatively slight. And but I always remember it for the the from the handbook perspective. The where does this where does this fit in continuity and what what was the story the backstory behind its creation and was it uh you know, to your point story it very clearly was written a bef- few years before it was published and was it meant to be the angel solo adventure during the first non-team era when uh the fbi professor x had died and the fbi said you know don't be x-men anymore go be oh. five mutants uh sprinkled around the country and so we had a, a cyclops and marvel girl story in new york they went really far uh you had beast and Iceman uh fighting maha yogi defeating him by wrapping him up in a in a curtain and then <laughs> and then you had polaris's introduction and the x-men got back together yeah. and jim steranko and then neil adams and you never got the angel solo story. So was this meant to be that story? And there's, you can look online, there's all kinds of like theorizing and, and sort of zapruderering of, of the, this story and the original art. And was it meant to fit there or not? Or did, was it meant to be in a anthology story somewhere? But I tend to come down on the side of this was probably going to be the, the angel story. And it had a few pages added to it to work as a three-part serial stretched across two different that makes titles. yeah that makes an enormous amount of sense actually yeah. uh, uh, go ahead uh, I, I was just gonna say you know just in, in general from being reading this for the very first time you know just looking at it from an art perspective as well as a writing perspective i thought it was as limited as my knowledge is with angel itself just from the animated series i thought that this was a, a fun like you guys said campy story so but the just the shading and the shadows and, and the colors of this particular comic was just amazing and the action was what really drew me throughout the entire story but i could see the they were trying to really push angel to be the the hero that they wanted him to be based off of what you guys were, were saying did he accomplish that? Who knows? But uh, at least with this story, he did. So He's got a unique power set, a unique situation. I think it's an overall pretty decent little story. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Now, speaking one more time of the reinterpretation of events, we're about on my podcast to spend a lot of time in the next few months on X-Men The Hidden Years, which is an early 2000s series that John Byrne set after X-Men number 66, but before Giant Size number one. And it's beautifully done in a lot of ways in that it fits perfectly into continuity. And they pick up a lot of the themes from the early books, such as the Xenox and uh, Magneto as the creator in the Savage Land. And one more thread that they will pick up is the Dazzler, the evil Dazzler, who comes back in that series. So we're going to spend some time on that character for today and then come back to him in the Hidden Years. Those are literally the only times he's ever shown up. (laughs) Yeah, I know. My experience with this Dazzler for many, many years was the, uh, you know, sort of the handbook footnote of, no, that other Dazzler that you know is Dazzler 2. There was another Dazzler, Dazzler 1, 
who is this guy? And then I read, and then Hidden Years came out and was like, oh, it's that Dazzler. It's the first Dazzler. The reason that the popular one is Dazzler too. And it was only after that that I, you know, this story was hard to find for many, even today, it's not the easiest thing to find. But uh, then I read this story. It was like, oh, okay, here's here's the original Dazzler. <laughs> yeah, he's he's something. Uh, so let's crack open the book. It's still only an 11-page story. It finishes everything up. This story is called To Cage an Angel. We already read some of the credits. Uh, the letters here by Artie Simek. Stan Lee is the editor, of course. And uh, when we are kind of starting these out, Stuart, are you willing to tell us what happens on the first couple pages of the book? Yeah, sure. I've got it open here. Um, uh, it begins uh, trapped in the stronghold of the Dazzler. Footnote, as seen in Kazar, number three. Um, and by the way, that stronghold it? is in the base of the Statue of Liberty. Thank you for telling me that because they didn't. But and 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 I will actually say that's a more useful footnote than usual because you're reading part three of a three-part story that's just suddenly appeared in Marvel Tales, which is mostly a reprint comic, and it's here for no particularly good reason. Um, so okay, uh, the captured young Birdman struggles mightily but fails to escape the grasp of three burly thugs as he is unmasked, which actually happens between parts two and three. Um, they're like reaching for his mask at the end of part two. Um, and then suddenly he's unmasked. Uh, so he says, so my secret identity is revealed once that would have been hard to take, but now, eh, you know, um, all that matters is the dazzler pays for having dad murdered. And, uh, then there's a caption saying, think this is a dramatic shocker. Just wait. And as you turn the page and this is, this, this all does get going pretty fast. The, the dazzler rips off his own mask. It says, "Hi, it's me, your uncle Bert." Um, and uh, and then uh, Warren is like, "Uncle Bert, you had your own brother killed. Why?" Which is, you know, a reasonable question, all things considered. Um, and then you know, there's a bunch of hitting and slapping and stuff, but uh, not not real violence, just slapping. Or, um, but uh, but Bert, ex Uncle Bert, explains uh, when he got out of prison, he asked Angel's his brother, Angel's father, to help give him a new start. Got him involved in a diamond in a diamond smuggling syndicate. When he accidentally discovered what my ultimate goal was, he threatened to tell the authorities. I had to order him slain. Um, I hated to kill my brother. He could have been useful to me longer. Which is not a, even a very nice way to look at your brother in the first place. But uh, I used him. Now come and see how I'll use you. Um, so his his ultimate goal is world conquest, of course. Um, and I'll be able to accomplish that fabulous feat easily after the world's largest diamond is played. Anyway, there's plot, there's plot. You will bring this diamond to me, nephew. Um, and that's, uh, that's page two. And there must be no slip ups, you understand. Um, and then uh, Angel breaks free. And that pretty much takes us uh, through page three. I will say this, uh, this story, this story isn't rich in X-Men themes. Um, let's say like it's a uh, it's um I, I think you guys maybe liked it a little better than I did, but uh but I will say the first two installments have a lot of like angst and 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 pretty dramatic stuff happening when um when Warren's father is killed and stuff like that. And this one this one I didn't think quite so much, but uh but anyway, that takes us up through page three, I think. So uh, somebody somebody else can probably take I over. I feel like the panel of uh, <laughs> your Uncle Bert is one of the fucking funniest moments <laughs> in all of X-Men history. It is funny. Because you've it's never heard funny. of this man. You don't care about him. You've never discussed again. But it, oh, no, it's Uncle Bert. Like, in this gigantic burst. Yeah, in this gigantic balloon word balloon burst. Uncle Bert. Yeah. 
Because there's in one fact, when, when they brought him when they brought him back, they really shouldn't have called him Dazzler. They should have just called him Uncle Bert. Like that's a right. that's a much better name for a character. Because it's one thing to say, do you remember the original Dazzler? But when you go, do you remember Angel's oh, Uncle, Uncle Bert, Bert, the original Dazzler? <laughs> just so- is <laughs> the same. Yeah. Oh my word, uh, Austin! Will you take us through the next few pages? Certainly. So Angel has broken free of uh, Dazzler's goons, and uh, in an attempt to get out of the base of the Statue of Liberty, he throws a fuel vat at uh, at said goons, which prompts an explosion. explosion. Uh, in in the in the uh, aftermath of the explosion, Dazzler himself manages to blast Angel with his helmet. That, I guess, is uh, is his gimmick. He's almost kind of like the unicorn, I guess, that has the the um, oh, kind of uh, yeah the the beam the the laser blast that comes out of the top of his helmet. Uh, so Dazzler, Uncle Bert, blasts Angel and locks him up in his mind command tube which is where he also has uh, Candy Southern uh, currently trapped. And from, from there, as the name suggests, Uncle Bird is able to brainwash Angel into picking up a special diamond from one of Dazzler's contacts. This is the, the largest diamond that I get that he needs. Um, why he needs Angel to get it? What that I, is his not big, clear his big plot is i'll kill your girlfriend unless you act as a DoorDash for me it's yeah really- exactly he's got this room <laughs> full of goons send a goon go get it i don't know he's so, just got this he's just got this kink for using his family you know like, yes, he just, yeah. he just yeah. wants to he just wants them to do his dirty work and it's not like angel being a mutant Angel having big wings and able to fly is in any way, shape, or form factoring into his need for Angel. Nope, just yeah, he likes to make his family do stuff, I guess. So uh, he sends he he tells Angel that he has to pick up this diamond um, and sends him off fully brainwashed. But unbeknownst to Uncle Bert, Angel's mutant nature has enabled him to resist the brainwashing. I was hoping it was going to be psychic training as a result of being a student of Professor X, but no, it's just he's a mutant and so he can't be brainwashed, which flies in the face of three out of four Chris Claremont stories um, <laughs> that that re- involve mutants becoming brainwashed. But or maybe order... maybe it was exactly that, but Angel just really is in this homo superior kick right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking that. So he, uh, I guess, in in you know, he's gonna he's gonna maintain the ruse for Candy's safety. Uh, goes to the meet, gets the diamond, comes back to the base of the Statue of Liberty, where Dazzler is preparing his spatial disruptor, the device which a needs the big diamond and b once it has it will enable him to conquer the world through spatial disruption. I guess uh, Angel gives him seemingly gives him the diamond hands over a, a big chunk of what looks like a diamond and gets thrown back in the brainwashing tube, even though he still is theoretically pretending to be brainwashed. He basically is like, well, here's your diamond. Let candy out. And Uncle Bert says no and throws him in the tube. So as a quick recap, Uncle Bert was in prison. He got out of prison, got a job working in diamonds, somehow started committing crimes. 
His brother was on to him, so he killed his brother, and now he wants to control the world. He just had this, like, ribbed hat around and, like, an orange jumpsuit and thought, now's the time to launch my career as the Dazzler. He somehow got real estate in the base of the Statue of Liberty, and somehow he got (laughs) access to build a mind tube as well as a spatial destructor. And he wants to, I don't know what the fuck this guy's deal is. He's Yeah, at the the beginning, he's talking about smuggling diamonds. So was he just smuggling diamonds and and got one and thought, hey, I can make a spatial disruptor out of this. That seems to be what happened. And I can control a few minds on the side with it. All with this one diamond. It'll be great. It's is the tinkerer his sugar daddy? There, there are so many potential. I don't know. I like I like the idea that he just got a job in the diamond industry, an industry (laughs) famously known for hiring ex-cons looking for a second chance. Yeah, if he'd if it had been in the garment industry, this would have been a whole different story, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Then, then the name the Dazzler would make total sense in that. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Make much yeah. more sense. This man did not have a choice but to be a supervillain, though. Uh, he, <laughs> if you look at his face, he has the, this near, he's got the nineteen forties like <laughs> melodrama villain face. It's the the big like pointy smile and like his eyebrows are always pointed down. Uh, he, I, I'm trying to think of an actor that resembles him. Weirdly, I'm getting like Paul Lind in my mind, but that's. Not <laughs> I was right. just gonna say it was Paul. Well, Lind. you know, you know, George Tuska's villains tend to all have this brutish look to them. You know, they they, they have really wide faces and a lot of teeth and just like so. The, 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 there is a there is a type there. Now that I have established him to be Paul Lynn, I'm going to have to reread the entire three-parter and just hear Paul Lynn's in my name and uh, in my or voice in my head every time the Dazzler speaks because that's perfect. Uh, <laughs> my goodness, uh, Kurt, will you take us through the end of the book? Sure. You know, after he inserts the diamond in, of course, into this, uh, well, and presses the doom button. You know, there's a suddenly there's a huge brunk because you know sound effects are apparently hard to write. The clanking, the goons are all in a tizzy and they are all of a sudden an explosion happens and the spatial destructor is going wild. Before before you continue, I have to spend just a moment on the Dazzler. When he's preparing to activate the machine, he goes, hmm, what should I destroy first? How about Paris? Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Because why not? Because he's pissed. He hates the French. This man... And then two panels later, he says, instead of destroying Paris, it's bursting apart, (laughs) which is also a great line. There's a story waiting to be told about him in Paris. Okay, keep going. I was going to say the whole clothing, if he was in the clothing industry, that would make total sense now, you know? Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) He, He must flee. So he's getting out of there. His goons are getting out of there. The whole joint must blow. And we was nuts. I mean, yeah, English is great here. We was nuts. <laughs> to anything to do with this caper. Dazzler confronts Angel and he says, You, you're responsible for this angel, but how? And all I did was substitute a cheap punk of glass for the real thing. So it's so know, stupid. He, how would he picked it up? How would you not know glass and diamond feel differently, weigh differently? It's so dumb. <laughs> He's a diamond expert. Like that's right. This his whole deal is that he knows diamonds. How does he not know this isn't a diamond? 
to be fair, that was a pretty that was a pretty common trope in, in oh, it was. fiction at the time. Very yeah. much so. Very much so. Oh, the uh, angel goes into action. You brain your brainwash tried and failed, or have you already guessed? And he socks Dazzler with a karate chop, apparently, and avoids getting shot as well too. While Dazzler, falling backwards, calls upon his goons once more. Angel is flying off, and in case it hasn't dawned on you, creeps, you've been working for the biggest loser in criminal history. I think we've already established this in our conversation here, as it is. Out of the way, and he's flying off to try to give them the slip. With Candy rescued, surprisingly, because that's apparently what he's doing. He just rescues her out of the blue. And he now goes after the criminal with candy in his arms. I mean, that's that's a true dedication to being a superhero. He grabs Dazzler, one, he flies off into the air as fast as he possibly can, thus the huge explosion destroying the Statue of Liberty, apparently. Right. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> so National Landmark is going to go on his prison, roll, uh, his prison uh, jacket there. He flies away into the skein before the big blast occurs. And is socked by Dazzler, calling him a mutant swine. You cheated me out of the whole world. But ironically, it was just Paris. <laughs> he sucks Dazzler. Of course, Candy is falling to the ground as fast as possible. Angel swoops in to save her. Of course, leaves Dazzler to his fate, falling thus towards Earth. And in a very cowboy yeehaw, the, oh, it's uh, not even a yeehaw. It's just yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't as yeehaw. <laughs> He's and so thus, excited. And thus, Angel uh, flies off with Candy in his arms to a hospital to get her much needed attention. Candy does not get a word to speak in this issue. We love Candy Southern. <laughs> she gets uh, she gets some shining moments in the first part of this story, and then she is an unconscious plot device for the rest. Uh, Stuart, you said you had some thoughts on uh, Candy Southern. Oh, I have a, I have a couple of thoughts on her, um, for, and and I know she's a favorite of you guys. Um, but he, um, first of all, uh, I think you noted in in one of the earlier installments of this that she's inexplicably a redhead in this story. Um, she's yeah, also called yeah. Candy Summers at one point, which is clearly just a mistake. Um, but uh, I, I went back and looked at her first appearance because of the next thing I'm going to tell you, and it, it, I think it was X Men 31, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And in that story. Jean Grey is wearing basically this dress, the same color dress. So this is clearly like whatever minimum wage slave had to do the coloring on this, looked up the reference and colored the wrong character. Like he, he, he saw Jean Grey in the first appearance of Candy and colored her that way because um, it's the same color dress. It's the same color hair that Jean has in that story. I, like I totally forgot to bring up the Candy Summers flub. Thank you for doing that. I get so caught <laughs> up with you sometimes. I forget to bring something in. But the other thing, and this is much more, this is much weirder, is uh, I think you said when you had Roy on, you discussed the origin of Candy's name, mm -hmm. right? Which yes. uh, goes back to Terry Southern, who was a, um, uh, and stop me if I'm, if I'm covering No, no, around, please, uh, go ahead. Terry Southern was a, um, a, a very popular uh, mid-century um, novelist and screenwriter, uh, best known for Easy Rider and um, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Um, but he, uh, and he, and he was one of the first writers to really bring, um, he hung out with the beats and he, uh, he brought a lot of that sensibility to film um, when he started doing screenplays. Um, 
But he came to uh, one of the things he came to prominence with was uh, writing a, a rather infamous novel called Candy, um, which in is about a in high 1958. 1958, which uh, was published by a uh, sort of a classy smut publisher called Olympia Press, which was very famous at the time. And it's about a high school girl who just starts having sex with everyone. Um, eventually, takes up with a. I haven't read it, but it takes up with a uh, with a hunchback and. Um, it like proclaims that he's a performance artist or something, something like that. Um, and this was made into a movie in 1967, I think it was, which would have been right about the time our candy first appeared. Um, I get a vision of this as if for modern context, like when Fifty Shades of Grey came out and it was like all the naughty book that the women were reading, but yeah, 21, this, the, the, the candy book gives me that vibe. That's It's exactly that vibe uh, from, from what I gather. And, uh, and but the, the other thing I wanted to mention was, I mentioned I started off in book publishing and so did my wife, um, Liz Sonneborn, who's a nonfiction writer. Um, and she worked at a few places, including Scribner's and Crown. And at the time, Crown had an imprint called Clarkson Potter, which pioneered lifestyle books, basically worked with uh, uh, Martha Stewart early on, um, things like that. And the executive editor who was behind all of that was a woman named Carol Southern, who was Terry Southern's ex-wife. And at the time Liz was working there, there was all this speculation about whether she was the inspiration for Candy, um, yeah. because <laughs> Terry had married her. Terry had married her when she was a model um, and she couldn't have been more than about 20 years old. Um, just in fact, when I, when I talked to my wife about this, she said, I said, how old was she when you, when you knew her? And she said, well, I think she was in her thirties. And I looked up the timing and she, she had to have been at least 50 at the time. Um, so, uh, and Liz remembers her as very, very pretty. Um, she was an ex model. Um, very, um, uh, a little flighty, um, but uh, but but very well respected. She died in 2011. Um, she had her own imprint at Crown, uh, Carol Southern Books, for almost 30 years, I think. Um, oh no, but I'm sorry, 20 years. Um, but uh, anyway, so I never met her, but my wife may have known the real Candy Southern, um, the, the, <laughs> the real life one. Um, it's so fun to hear so, that story, uh, <laughs> right? right? And nobody knows, but like it was all whispers in the office, like, is that Candy? Like, is, that, is that Candy? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, Austin and Kurt, any comments or questions? I can't top that. That's I, just, right? No, I'm just yeah. processing all that. That's fantastic. <laughs> That was brilliant, brilliant. And putting the pieces of that together as you start to get a sense of the wider publishing industry as a whole. And right. many of these men married younger, like supermodels, including yeah. Jeff Siegel. His wife was the model for Lois Lane mm -hmm. uh, from yeah. the original and, art. So, I mean, it's just a fascinating and, thing to watch. And Stan, Stan Lee, for that matter. Like, you, yeah. uh, and, and, but uh, yeah, and um, it's, you know, they, um, I was actually a little surprised when I went back and looked and saw that um, Candy Southern, the character, um, was created by Roy because the the idea of naming a character like that uh, after something sort of risque and obscure um, that sounded very Chris to me. That 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 seemed right. like something Chris would right. do, like with like Jason Wingard, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, sure, sure. But uh, but it must have been. I mean, did what did did Roy talk about why he did this? Like. Uh, I, is, I think Roy often would have ideas in his mind. He he the sense I get from him is whenever he was traveling, reading, consuming anything, he was always thinking about the next story he had to write. 
And mm-hmm. he loves to work in references to the things that he was looking at and viewing. Uh, I think he just liked the name and wanted yeah. to tribute. I think he liked the book. Uh, it was kind of where that came from. But but I've I've, I've talked to him enough or twice, enough times I say. But I talked to him twice, and that's very much the sense I get. We uh, in my last interview with him, for example, we talked about the time the X Men fought the alien Frankenstein monster, and he was like, "Oh, that was my tribute to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein." Yeah. <laughs> a lot about the ideas. So I think he just was kind of using whatever was in his brain. Uh, yeah, because I, I I was curious about it in this case because this is for the time at Marvel. This is a fairly this is kind of a naughty reference, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's a little um, it's a little it's something you had to slip under under the radar a little bit. But it was also five or six years after, or maybe seven years after the book was published. Yeah, but uh, again, it was right. There was the movie, which um, oh, sure, is, sure. Not, is not well remembered. Um, it, I think it's uh, the, the woman who starred in it was an unknown. I think it was French. But uh, Richard Burton's in it, and so is Marlon Brando, apparently. Oh, um, I'm going to go so, on. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, I want to end on uh, how do you feel like Angel was portrayed in this story? There's the little bit where he blames Candy for his dad's death, which is very messed up if you read the earlier stuff. Uh, uh, but he, I do like this story. I think it gives him a little bit of a chance to shine. There's some consequences for his character that stick with him afterward. Uh, it's it's an interesting bit. I, I think it's a, I think it's a good story overall. Do you have thoughts on Angel's portrayal as a hero in this? I think he's portrayed pretty well as a hero. I, I again, I, I think I think everyone did their best on this story, but I don't think it's anyone's finest work. I mean, he flies <laughs> in punches, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, especially in this third installment. Like, considering how fast the plot developments come in this story like there's not a lot of processing of what's happened like yeah. it's it's kind of a race to the finish the first two installments have a little more they slow down a little more they have a little more of that um for the time trademark marvel angst um going on um but uh i mean angels i think angels fine but i think it's a it's kind of an odd story all around and that's that's part of what makes it fun and campy for us yeah. now yeah absolutely yeah and then my second question, and this is the last one, is what do you think of the Dazzler's costume? If you were to cosplay as this man, I feel like I could go down to my local gay, like, leather gear sex shop and buy every piece <laughs> that I need, and I'm ready to go. Well, some here I, mean, I come. It, it's also worth pointing out that uh, uh, this story features Angel in... Uh, what would be hard to argue isn't his worst costume of all time. He, <laughs> the yellow, the yellow top with the suspenders. I call it uh, his ketchup and mustard look. His ketchup and mustard <laughs> look. Yes, yeah. the Gene gave him when they all got their original their original looks for the first time, and uh, you know, chronologically, shortly after this, he gets the Neil Adams mm. suit with the little halo on it that in the blue, and then that becomes the red, and that's just Magneto, Magneto right. designed that one. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, that's and that's fantastic. But this is this is hideous. Yeah, this is when I when I when I started in comics, we referred to a bad coloring job as a roll of lifesavers, and this is definitely a roll of lifesavers. This costume. <laughs> yes, it's just, absolutely. It's just red, blue, yellow, red, blue, yellow. Mm-hmm. Oh God, this is so fun! Uh, and Dazzler's hat. My final comment. I've saved this for the end. Is his hat is ribbed for his own pleasure? Yeah, uh, that's uh, yeah. That's, where, that's where we'll stop. 
I actually think you could. I think you could get most of that custom at a hardware store. To be honest, yeah. like most of it, like that that tool belt isn't gonna um, isn't gonna set you back too much. Fucking Paris. Well, that that's why he went to Paris Fashion Week, and that's why he wants to destroy it. He got rejected from there. That's oh, that is. makes sense. That's his origin right there. It hurts. It hurts. Paul Lynn goes to Paris. Paul Lynn goes to Paris. bondage gear, and they send him away. <laughs> oh god this has been a genuine delight Stuart. i'm so fascinated to hear your stories and your history what an honor to get to know you and uh and curtin austin it's so great hanging out with you guys i i love hanging out with fellow nerds that make me smile it's my favorite thing so uh this has been a genuine delight thank each of you uh as we are wrapping up uh where can people find each of you online and recognizing we're going to put this episode out on April 10th, what would you like to plug or talk about that maybe you're allowed to unless you have it? <laughs> uh, let's go in, uh, in the order of Stuart Austin and then Kurt. Uh, okay, I can be found on uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook at StuartMoore01 and on Instagram at Stuart... No, I'm sorry, StuartMoore1 and on Instagram, StuartMoore01 just to be confusing. Um, I have a website uh, called stuartmoorewriter.com, which uh, I try to keep up to date as well. Um, I have uh, just out, uh, as we record this, is um, a collection of my, uh, my comic book series, Highball from Ahoy, which is about the best uh, space pilot in the Earth Corps who can only hit the target when he's dead drunk. So it's a bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a farce and a bit of a moral exploration of, uh, of um, what it takes to be... Uh, to do to do terrible things in combat um, at the same time, uh, and uh, on May second, I'll have out uh, my latest Marvel novel, which is called Into the Dark Dimension, um, which is a huge, um, huge scale story involving uh, almost all of the major Marvel characters, uh, in which Tony Stark and Doctor Strange, leading a new group called the Shadow Avengers, um, have to, in their separate ways, try to free Earth from uh, overarching. Uh, mind control uh with ms marvel caught right in the middle between the two of them um so uh so that uh that'll be out soon i'm also doing some more work for a company called interpop which has its own fun um superhero line that they put up uh they put up the comics free on their website and then sell nft versions um and they've just relaunched their um one of their their anthology title emergence presents and i'll be in a an early issue of that coming up soon i'm not sure exactly when Fantastic, Stuart. Thank you. And I look forward you. to reading your new stuff. All of that sounds so wonderful. Uh, Austin. Uh, yeah, I can be found on Twitter at Austin Gorton. Uh, on Instagram, it's at Austin X Gorton. Um, I'm on Mastodon as well. Austin Gorton at something. Search for that. You'll find it. <laughs> um, so you can, you can uh, follow me there. I, I'm pretty good about linking out to my stuff from Twitter, but uh, otherwise, my website is therealgentlemanofleisure.com. That's where you can find all of my X-Men reviews. Um, the uh, website for our podcast is a very special episode, podcast.com. That's available through all the, uh, the wherever you're listening to this on, you can find it there, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and then uh, I'm all over the internet writing about comics and stuff, Comics XF, Popverse. Uh, Polygon, whatnot, but um, um, come to my website or go to Twitter and, and I'll link out to all that kind of stuff there. Uh, genuine delight to meet you, man. That's uh, Thanks for yeah, having me. This has been a blast. It's been fun, guys. Yeah, it's been really fun. And then over to you, Kurt. Well, I am the host of Two Geeks Talking, which you can find on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's the word two, not the number two. 
My website is going through a revamp. So please go to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash C forward slash TGT media. The podcast is back after 15 years. You can find it on any audio streaming service, but it's primarily at tgeekstalking.podbean.com. And there's over a thousand plus interviews from 2008 on. So 15 years of podcasting right at your ear tips or whatever it is there. And <laughs> I just want to thank, uh, thank you, Chad and Stuart and Austin for, for having me on as well, too. This was a, a learning experience and educational one, and I can't wait to check out all the stuff you guys talked about. Uh, Leslie, I'm Chad Anderson. You can find me. I keep my own social media private, but because I've got kiddos, the three of you are welcome to add me since I've met you now. <laughs> but as a standard, uh, you can't add my private stuff. Uh, uh, you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. Uh, we are booked to the end of August as I say this, which is incredible. And I'm so excited, like watching the shows come together month by month and seeing where we're going and making like these little steps. Like I've done the angel story now. This is amazing. <laughs> I got to interview and make new friends. So uh, after this, uh, the next episode coming out is going to review Cable Minus One from Flashback Month, which is a Cable lands in the past with Moira McTaggart and Wolfsbane story. And it's actually pretty wonderful. Uh, the guest on that episode is Charlie Jane Anders. Uh, we also have The Trial of Craven the Hunter coming out uh, later this month, as well as uh, an epic... Uh, well, I'm doing a show with three professional drag queens who are going to come in and rate, do the Tudor boot thing with uh, with the 1960s costumes only. Uh, nice. so we're have wow. a, a fashion nice. review, and then uh, review the Alan Davis series Savage Hulk one through four, which is set after again the original series uh, ended. Uh, what a delight to hang out with all of you. Oh, oh, uh, my next Patreon episode after this is going to be with Jeff Christensen, the editor from the Modern Handbooks, uh, all about the Sidri, the uh, the aliens, the Sidri. So watch for that as well. Uh, Stuart, uh, Austin, and Kurt, thank you. This has been a genuine delight. Thanks, everyone. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.